welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. and the detentions and the character-building exercises. Prince Edward was possibly the top government school in the country, oozing with tradition, and a list of alumni as long and as powerful as anything else on the continent. Typical of that kind of institution, however, art was shunned. I loved art. Art was shoved to an outhouse run by some daft liberal third grade teacher armed with a few tins of powder paint and some clay for making useless ashtrays or wobbly coffee mugs. Theatre, despite the efforts of the extraordinarily talented John Haig, was largely neglected. And of course music was non-existent. My mum, with her Amdram ideas, decided to send me to elocution lessons at a nearby girls' school. The big annual Christmas semester event was always centred around Gilbert and Sullivan productions. Despite John Haig's efforts in educating us in the finer side of English drama, these absurd operettas, directed by Wart, always came top of the annual arts calendar. The format remained the same year after year. The seniors always played the men, be they pirates, sailors, samurais, or whatever. And the juniors played the women, the maidens, the damsels, the geishas, and all of that kind of stuff. I, of course, had the pleasure of playing one of the maidens in Pirates of Penzance. Now, what is this and what is that and why does father leave his rest at such a time of night as this so very incompletely dressed? Their father is and always was the most methodical of men. It's his invariable rule to go to bed at Oppas Ten. What strange occurrence can it be that calls their father from his rest at such a time of night as this so very incompletely dressed? fantasy world of fairies and stardust. Alan's presence could be felt breathing over me. He stood behind me, pinching me hard, so hard that it caused bruises on my arms. He constantly tested me to see if I would yelp out at an inopportune moment. Initially, it began as just a bit of humour. Like some masochist, I kind of enjoyed the attention. Just getting his undivided attention was enough, at first. After all, I was a wood, and I was made of sterner stuff and simply endured the minor torture. 
in the words of many a great actor, the fucking show must go on. To Alan, it was just a bit of fun and games. Of course, my drama career now was in full swing, or so I thought. I would rush between I Steadfords, having just performed in Shakespeare's very bloody King John, Act Four. Hubert, if you will, cut out my tongue so as to keep mine eyes. Oh, spare mine eyes. And then, dashing across town, clutching my first-class certificate, straight onto the stage at Prince Edward, to play some fluttering, doe-eyed maiden in distress. Too often, my mother would make me up in the car because we didn't have enough time, sometimes forgetting what role I was about to play and turning me into some Egyptian princess rather than the required Gilbert and Sullivan tart. As we built up to the grand finale, belting out our last number... Alan would be standing right beside me, jabbing me or twisting my arm in a stinging Chinese bangle. But with a dignity and professionalism that might have raised an eyebrow at the old Vic, I soldiered on until the final curtain call. Initially, elocution meant the joy of getting out of dreary homework in the evenings. It also allowed me to spread my wings and to fly. For once, I could just be me. During those many elocution lessons, I no longer had to be rugged or masculine or, or tough. But the price of elocution meant a life of torment back in the dorm. Getting A's in a nice Steadford is one thing, but toughing it out in a tough school in a tough country, going through a tough war, well, that was another thing entirely. Being an outsider at any boarding school could spell disaster. Elocution taught me how to speak English like a pommy, and having a pommy accent at a time when Harold Wilson's England was hardly flavour of the month, was not such a good idea. It was a brave move, but my need to be heard in the farthest reaches of the gods, my craving to tread the boards, my desire to pull on a pair of my mum's tights, velvet tunic and a feathered cap, coursed hotly through my veins. Here was a country where the rougher your yarpy accent, the more of a man you were. Having the elocution lessons at the girls' high school, or GHS, generated even more ridicule until I told the boys that there were plenty of hot chicks at elocution lessons, all vying for my attention. <laughs> Ironically, I ended up deliberately cultivating a Rhodesian accent, ultimately cancelling out any good work my poor, long-suffering elocution teacher managed to achieve. 
I also loved painting and sketching, and so I began having extra lessons at the Salisbury School of Art, run by the wonderfully eccentric and incredibly talented Peter Birch. Once a week, I would leave after dinner and walk across town, down the stunning jacaranda-lined avenues to his home and studio in Greenwood Park. Birch's art lessons were mixed, adult and student, boy and girl. His classes were fun, irreverent, fascinating, sophisticated, and often very heated, many sessions lasting late into the night. And if he thought you were not putting enough oomph into a painting, he would go mad. He would tear it from your easel and rip it apart in front of a gobsmacked group. Once even going so far as to claw at my paper, shredding it up in a rage. His lip curled up like a lion. <gasps> it was wonderful stuff. You never made that same mistake again. One vivacious student, Barbara-Ann Meeker, took the brunt of it, often in the form of Peter Birch's finger prodding her ample boobs. The best thing in the world, he would say, raising his extraordinary Spock eyebrows in an obvious challenge, are fabulous large nipples poking through a T-shirt. <laughs> of course, he... He once went too far and ended up with a sound clout across the face. That was the last we saw of him that day. Sometimes Birch would simply walk out of a lesson and disappear upstairs, not to be seen again all evening. I think this was because he was disgusted with our bad art. I don't know. Although one couldn't ignore the carnal grunting that resonated through the floorboards. We simply put it down to an artistic temperament. I think Peter may have had bisexual tendencies. I don't know. I certainly hoped so. And while I was too naive to even know what bisexual was, I certainly understood the charged atmosphere when he was nearby. My diary from the period clearly states as much, albeit slightly misguided. Went to art, had a row with Peter Birch about art, the usual stuff. He divorced his wife, you know, because he was caught in bed with a reporter. Whether it was a male or female, I don't know. In many ways, Peter Birch reminded me of my Uncle Andrew, not the sexual thing, God forbid, the bohemian thing. Andrew and my Aunt Susie had both been successful on the West End and on Broadway back in the late 1950s. And in my eyes, they were the most sophisticated people I knew. Andrew was well-travelled and often bought me marvellous curios from far-off places. Birch reminded me of Andrew. Birch's home was draped in the spoils from Kathmandu and Benares. Sets of jewel-encrusted cookery knives on the walls, stained glass Moroccan lamps hanging from the ceilings, large, comfy couches draped in mirrored and beaded cloths from Afghanistan. He offered a window to another world, 
which I jumped through as soon as I was allowed to leave school. Birch taught me the meaning of cool. One of the greatest crimes for an Anglo-Saxon male was to be too much of a teacher's pet, too much of a brain box, too well read. At our school, if you were, well, let's be honest, if you were Jewish, being a teacher's pet was cool. Indeed, it was de rigueur. But being too bookish for an Anglo-Saxon in a sporty school was frowned upon like a Veruca or Dobie's itch and would often lead to something worse, the next biggest crime, having unacceptable friends. The two went hand in hand. And talking about hand in hand, being a pufter or queer was the biggest crime of all. Gosh, there were hundreds of ways of being gay at school. Funnily enough, Thursdays was always gay day, or as we called it, morph day. While it was primarily a joke, I just wonder what would have happened should two lads walk down the avenue on a Thursday holding hands. I doubt if they would have made it past the first jacaranda tree before being ball-brushed with kiwi polish. Yet at boarding school, gay could mean anything from being sensitive, compassionate, crying at any time regardless of the injury or pain, the love of art, theatre or dance, being in the choir, God, we made sure our balls dropped quickly, and finally, reading books written about, well, written about all of the above. Not being gay, in other words, being rugged and butch, ironically meant wanking contests, gripping the prop or hook a tightly by the balls, studying at close quarters each boy's newly grown pubic hair, skinny dipping at midnight, boisterousness in the shower, Sticking your finger up someone's arse and then shoving it under someone's unsuspecting nose. <sighs> no wonder pufters grow up confused. In the face of such childhood adversity, my brother Duncan taught me to always respond with a smile, no matter what. Now, but he would lecture me when I was about 12 years old. When you go to PE, you will have to do initiation, and I just want you to laugh your way through it, okay? Don't cry. Just whatever you do, don't cry. So I smiled. I smiled my way through three weeks of initiation. I smiled my way through rat races under the bed, pushing a penny with my nose until it bled. And I smiled when getting thumped with duffel bags as we ran the gauntlet. I smiled when the spittle from an incensed senior drizzled over my face because I had forgotten his name. And I smiled after I'd run to the tuck shop seven times in one afternoon, each trip just to get a single penny call. I smiled and I smiled like an idiot. And it worked. One day they just stopped. They decided that if they weren't going to get the desired reaction, then, well, what was the point? 
I quickly learned that to survive, you had to be tough. So I became tough. I became a rebel. I swore. I smoked. I bunked out at night and got drunk. After a while, I became known as a bit of a hellraiser and a party animal, once even setting light to a five-acre field of dry elephant grass near Prince's Field while smoking with my pal, David Fox. The sirens of the fire engines could be heard all afternoon from across the school grounds as an ominous pall of grey smoke filled the sky. David and I cowered in the coal shed for fear of our lives and lit another cigarette. As far as mindless, unadulterated naughtiness goes, my diary on a Sunday night says it all. After a good chapel service, Foxy, Richard, Ustes and Johan, Bloodnut and I went downtown. We first went to SS, then to the Terrascane. Got pissed, very pissed. Then on to Clubbies, quite nice there. And then on to the Cock Door, which was closed. So we went to an all-nighter cafe and ordered a hamburger. We revved the bugger by saying... You call this a burger, it's more like a piece of shit between two bricks. And he told us to fuck off or else he would call the police. Foxy broke the window with his hand, by mistake I think, and we tore the canvas canopy and ran off. We slept on Jubilee Field for a while and then went to the YMCA. The YMCA, why did we do that? When we got back at half past midnight, Gus Harsbrook was in my bed, so I slept on the floor. It doesn't mention why he was in my bed. Then again that same week, that Thursday, in the evening we, being rich, foxy, Ustason and I, went and drank a bottle of Twier Young Gazellen and a bottle of Fleur du Cap. It was chuffed. We then went to clubbies, but we had to pay to get in, so we went to cause shit with an Indian owner of an all-nighter. He brought out a flick knife and wanted to kill us, not surprisingly, and threatened to call the cops. After that, we ran back to school. A bit of a waste of an evening, really. I formulated a rule of thumb to get me through boarding school. Brain, find someone who is so damn clever that not even the brawniest bullies will bother him. A guy with a tongue that can lash them and make them feel like absolute plonkers and dickheads. So enter stage right, David Fox, a.k.a. Foxy. And then I needed brawn. Now without brawn, your brain can't really function. Besides, the brawn gives you status and elevates you to an untouchable level. So enter stage left, Andrew Coburn, a.k.a. Spike. I found both of these traits, brain and brawn, in my two pals, Foxy and Spike, and with them came a group of people who remained loyal to me all of my school days. Luckily, Spike also had brains, 
but his boxing skills, Irish background, and small guy cockiness ticked nearly every box. Noel Coward once said, Never trust a short man. His head is too close to his bottom. Well, I disagree. And without these two guys, I doubt if I could have managed. One entry in my diary simply states, Hey Foxy, did you read my diary last night? Because if you did, don't get the impression I can't stand your guts because really, you're the only true friend I've got. But it's just that sometimes, you rarely get on my tits. Despite my protective gang, I was bullied. To be honest, I've no idea why. Oddly, it didn't happen in the first two years of high school, perhaps because I had my big brother there. It slowly crept up on me, and notwithstanding the first three weeks of initiation, and then, of course, Iddy's daily beatings, the real bullying only got going after I turned 15. Yet I was by no means a wimp. I gave as much as I got. I was a champion cross-country runner, always barefoot. Zola Bud had nothing on me. And I'd even managed to get into the under-15 rugby first team. Admittedly, one weekend off, when I proudly told my father this news over breakfast, all he said was, Really? The standards must have gone down. And went back to his porridge. Sometimes his humour was lost on me. Away from all the balls, I fared a lot better. I was in the cross-country A-team. Foxy, my brainy sidekick, was not a great runner. Where I failed in the classroom, he succeeded. But watching poor Foxy struggle against nature on an eight-mile run was a lesson in pure unadulterated torture and determination. Now, joining Mr. Cock, along came a Mrs. Ball. What with all the balls and cocks in the staff room, one's mind boggles. Mrs. Ball was our cross-country coach. She was also a teacher, of course. She was our secret weapon. You see, Mrs. Ball was sassy, crass, Sexy as fuck. Fun. Cheeky. Need I go on? Oh yes, and she was married and middle-aged. It seems insane that a school with a reputation for an athletic excellence chose a woman with perfect bow-shaped scarlet lips, bardo eyeliner, poofed hair, and the sharpest stilettos I've ever seen as a coach of the cross-country team. But Mrs. Ball was adored in the classroom too, employing a teaching method that was simply wonderful. She could turn a story or a famous person or an event into a work of art, twisting a dull history class into something bursting with colour and scandal and love. Her pièce de résistance involved giving us the most descriptive lesson on sex education, going as far as to describe an orgasm in such detail that when I finally did watch When Harry Met Sally, many years later, 
the orgasm scene took me straight back to Mrs. Ball. Having gained our respect in the classroom, she proceeded to make us run. So here was this wonderful exotic woman draped in a cape, shoes in her hands, running in her stockings alongside her team, yelling at us to push harder. Go on, you can do it. You can make it. Run, damn it. Run. And run we did, winning nearly every race that year. And if memory serves, making history as the best cross-country team the school had ever had. I'm blessed with rather long prehensile toes, which allowed me to run for miles at a fast pace. My father always said, at least I had a good grip on Africa. Running also gave me leverage. It gave me a strength, a kind of power that shielded those other strange Greek feelings, those other thoughts that were so derided by everyone else at school. Good old Mrs. Ball knew just how to put those toes into action. Her reverence was the very thing that made us love her. One evening during debating class, Mrs. Ball pulled out a playboy and flicked it open to the double-page spread. Tonight, children, she commanded, her eyes peering over her stylish 1950s glasses, her manicured hands daintily holding the corner of the magazine to reveal a woman spread-eagled for all the world to see. We debate about sex. The room erupted into a riot with tables overturning as kids scrambled to tear a page from that most sought-after publication. Bear in mind, Playboy was banned in our country, and at that moment, Mrs. Ball's husband, a rather dour farmer, decided to walk in the door. I'm not sure what triggered his anger, whether it was because the magazine belonged to him or whether it was because there were children present, but his anger was palpable as his face turned a blood-red puce, his lips trembled, his hands shook, and then he bellowed, he roared, he went absolutely apeshit, tearing the magazine from his wife's hands, grabbing her by the scruff of the neck, and marching our dear, fabulous Mrs. Ball out of the pavilion and into obscurity. History and biology were never the same again. If you enjoyed that episode about my school days, then tune in for part three, coming up soon. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, 
feel free to write to me. Goodbye.